Uh, yeah. So I decided after talking with John Bashara, because of the timeliness of SARS-CoV-2 and how much duty I feel to start giving people, all you guys who listen, and give us the, the very valuable resource of your time, I felt it was our obligation to run John's interview concurrently with Wendy Dean's. And so you are going to hear, depending on where I put this, I'll probably put this little thing on both Wendy's and John's episodes. You're going to hear this little little disclaimer up front. It's nothing against Wendy Dean and Simon Talbot. Moral injury is a big deal. But, you know, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. So if I get both of these episode series up in the same three-week period, I think it'll benefit a lot more people than if I just do one and then the other and it takes six weeks. So forgive me if it seems confusing about the uh, production schedule, but I'm going to really tackle that and hopefully give you guys something to think about. That's my disclaimer. Now let's get on to this episode. Take me to the streets so I can celebrate. Never knew feeling better than today. Means what beginning. Of a brighter day, letting in a feeling, mending what we break. Find the solace in a dismay. Yeah, and, and you know, the whole point of this, John, is because we, on the podcast rotations, we do something called Specialty Spotlight. And specific. Uh, what's that? Cool. Yeah, and so what we try to do is we try to tell medical students and pre-meds kind of listen and say, oh, what does a pulmonologist do? Why do people become pulmonologists? What's the worst day in a pulmonologist's day and week? And what's the best day? And You know what I'm saying? But because of COVID-19, we also want to make sure that we're, we're, we're kind of addressing things there because we can, we can do double duty. You know what I mean? Rotations is all about allowing interesting people the opportunity to share their opinions and ideas. Some listeners may find the opinions and content expressed disturbing and or objectionable. Push away the pain. Life is a playground. You can play the game. Look to the horizon. The sun is on the way. Move till the night time, then we'll fade away. Find the solace in this name. Hello, everybody. This is Todd Frederick Siamadio, and I'm an associate professor of family medicine at the High University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine with tenure, which is an awfully nice thing. And um, uh, this is an episode which, again, is displacing uh, a series of episodes. It's displacing some other stuff I've recorded, but because it's timely. And you'll find out why it's timely in a minute. Um, I have the pleasure of speaking with... Uh, a, a new friend. He's been a friend of mine now for about three months, and I didn't know him before that, but because of COVID-19, I've gotten to know him, and it, it works out perfectly because he happens to be a specialty of medicine we haven't talked about yet on rotations in the last couple of years. And as well, he's an individual who is directly involved with the care of people who have been exposed to uh, or are currently suffering from COVID-19. And so with that, I'm going to introduce John Bashara, D.O. Hello, John. 
Hello, Pat. How are you? I'm very good. And I'm so thankful that you agreed to do this. We've, we've been talking about this for over a month, but you are now very busy. What You were telling me earlier, what happened today that is unusual for the last couple months? So today we actually started seeing patients full-time in the office. In the past, we were doing a lot of our patient care, uh, outpatient care, excuse me, telemedicine-wise. How, how how was telemedicine as a pulmonologist? How, what was that transition like for you? Because we'll get into the normal stuff, the background and all that stuff, but since it's come up, what was telemedicine like for you? It is very difficult to, uh, you know, establish a rapport over the phone. You know, the history is the same over the phone in person, but can't really establish nonverbal communication can't really establish a good physical exam because you can't really evaluate the, the patient or uh, the parent who accompanies the patient. Um, what, you have to try to adjust it somehow. So did, did, you, did you learn something new in the process, John? I mean, as far as how, because you had, had you done telemedicine before? And if, if so, then maybe you already knew, but if you didn't, what, because there's a pretty steep learning curve there, what are the things that you found out about yourself as a physician trying to do telemedicine that you wish you'd have known about before you started? I actually was interested in doing the telemedicine in uh, the beginning because uh, part of my background is we were trying to uh, increase telemedicine uh, in some of my patient population because of how far they drop. So to me, telemedicine was actually kind of easier, and I actually liked it a lot more than ha- ha- having patients drive three hours, four hours away. So increasing the scope of medicine in that sense to me is lovely. So is there? Is so now you're back in clinic. Have you stopped doing telemedicine? And the reason why I ask that is because it sounds to me like there's a, there's definitely a need for an in-person relationship. But is there a hybrid model that you'll carry forward that involves some telemedicine now and some inpatient clinical operations, or is it just going to go stri- strictly back to inpatient visits, in-office visit? I should say. We are doing a hybrid. Some of those patients, or excuse me, patients and their parents. Uh, who feel uncomfortable coming to the hospital and coming to the office due to uh, COVID-19, we still have them to do telemedicine visits. And how do you think that's going to work out in the long term? Is it it a a better situation or a worse situation than pre-COVID? I think long term, uh, based on billing, based on... uh, based on just medical documentation, I think it will actually be better. I think parents will be happier, especially they can do it at the leisure of their own home. I think some of the physicians will call patients and be like, you know, if they pick up, great. If they don't, it's fine. You know, I'm not wasting time or being inefficient uh, for patients that don't show up. I'm actually putting in effort. Man, that's so. Did you guys figure out how to actually bill for services by doing telemedicine? Then, 
Not yet. Uh, there is a certain documentation code. Uh, we use the electronic medical record EPIC. Mm-hmm. And in EPIC, they have a billing code uh, called uh, missing documentation. I forget what the the number is, but when I'm pulling it up right now. And because we can't do a physical exam, we can't bill appropriately. Interesting. So, so, so that's still got to be refined as we move forward in the new reality, eh? Yes, because uh, most of the patients in the pediatric pulmonary is Medicaid, and they really have not uh, discussed how to really refine it. The Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, have has really helped shine a light on Medicare patients, but not so much on Medicaid. And we're trying to figure out how to do, how to improve that. John, do you see, and I, I know we're, we're, we're down the rabbit hole now on this, but I think it may be interesting to other physicians and people who are looking at this. Do you, do you see this as a benefit in some cases for reducing um, nosocomials or, uh, you know, office-generated infections from bringing some of these more vulnerable lung patients into your office so frequently? W- will this be a better thing in the long term, or is it going to make any difference at all? I'll tell you this, a lot of my patients with uh, underlying asthma or chronic lung disease of prematurity, I have seen a reduction in respiratory infections. Kids have not gone outside to schools or daycares, so there's a huge reduction in illnesses, and most parents will tell me, well, I'm not seeing uh, my kids as sick as often, I'm not seeing my relatives as sick as often, and I feel that you know, it's, this is a good time of year, especially with the summer time. And most kids, you know, it's June 8th, they should have been already out of school. But since of COVID-19, you know, they've been out of school for the last couple of months. And, well, I do believe that the respiratory infections have has decreased tremendously. It's interesting because you hear things on social media about people saying, well, this lockdown, how many deaths has the lockdown caused because people couldn't get to their doctors? And yet, as physicians, it's intuitive to me that the less time a person spends in an acute waiting room with a lot of respiratory infections, the more likely it is they don't get that infection. And, and I'm, that, of course, that's still very premature. And in five years, we can probably look at a lot of data and see if that's really true. But it just seems to me like we should be seeing a benefit. And at least in one case, yours, you may be, you may be picking up some of that benefit than it sounds like. Absolutely. I can tell a lot of parents are happier that their children are not as sick, uh, I've seen a lot of uh, adult patients who are also not sick, so I'm actually happier in that sense that they're actually improving as well. Wow. Well, okay, John. So this is this is awesome, and in fact, you may have just opened up uh, an, a future episode in six months to a year where we we look back when the hybrid model is well is mature. And maybe then you can you can bring us up to speed on is it really holding true, especially after we get through flu season next year. I'm really curious about that. But um, so maybe at this time, what I'll do is I'll start with a normal set of questions, which is and and people who listen to rotations know. John, tell us about your background. Where did you come from, and sure. and and how did you get to where you're at now? 
Sure. So I was born and raised in Jersey City, New Jersey. Uh, did most of my education in New York. So I'm also a fellow of the uh, Todd. So I graduated uh, from NYIT, did the uh, seven-year program, BSCO. Uh, I went to NICOM. along with my older sister who also graduated NICOM and she's an actually a orthopedic trauma surgeon. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, orthopedic trauma surgeon. So me, so I did my pediatric residency in New York, Long Island, Good Samaritan, Winthrop University Hospital. I did pulmonology at Winthrop University Hospital, and I went over to the West Coast uh, University of Southern California and Children's Hospital Los Angeles and did a sleep fellowship. So, but then, yeah. Yeah, but, but but that's not where you're at now. How did you so get... right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, and then actually finding a job, surprisingly... It was hard for me because what people don't tell you is it's very hard as a new graduate, new uh, person coming from fellowship to get a job because we're still considered sort of dangerous. So pulmonologists, just new fellow graduates. Oh, I see new fellow graduates considered a higher risk right, at practicing. Okay. Keep going. Correct. Expand on that. And so new fellow graduates. So I actually interviewed at several hospitals in New York, uh, probably four or five hospitals in Los Angeles, California, a hospital in Orlando and a hospital in uh, New Orleans. And that was actually a common uh, saying that says, you know, look, you're very well trained, but if I, ha I have you who is a new graduate and I have someone who's five, ten years in already board certified, I'm going to go with the seasoned veteran. Hmm. So long story short, my sister I was at, who's already is practicing here in Charleston and when I was like, oh, you know, I made jokes with her. I was like, oh, you know, they're actually looking for a pediatric pulmonologist. I should interview. My mom actually went to my sister. Oh, is it true? Is John really going to apply? My sister was like, no, I doubt it. But no, I actually came, applied, and uh, here, you know, here I am at Charleston Area Medical Center, West Virginia University Physicians of Charleston. And, and yeah, and and for people who don't know, uh, the Charleston has several big medical institutions. John, do you go between uh, women's and children's and the big hospital? How do you how does that work? Because you have you have experience in pediatric pulmonology. I mean, that's what you do. So, Correct. where is your main hospital location if you're working, or do you just go between as the group? So, no, my main hospital is women and children, but I do get consulted by the adults for patients with cystic fibrosis in Memorial. I have gone to general, uh, CMC General Hospital to do bronchoscopies on patients in the SICU or in the surgical trauma ICU. 
And because it's an integrated hospital system, there's no issue of credentials, correct? Correct. Man. Well, well, but so why pulmonology? Because I, um, I I was an anesthesia resident and I left because my program was failing and the hospital actually closed and that drove me back into family medicine. I loved respiratory and cardiovascular mechanics and physics and physiology. Why would, why do you choose pulmonology? Tell me what was appealing to being a pulmonologist for you? A very good question, Todd. So surprisingly, when I uh, was choosing uh, my residency and my fellowship, I actually wanted to do pediatric emergency medicine initially. Wanted to do it since, you know, the dawn of time. And it has just gotten very hard to get into pediatric emergency medicine. So, you know, I what I tell the medical students and the residents, I was like, you always have a plan B. You always have a backup. Mm. You always have a backup. So I also interviewed in pulmonology. So I just matched into pulmonology because the critical care aspect was always fascinating. I really liked critical care. And on top of that, mechanical ventilation, like knowing how to run the ventilators were always fascinating. It's not. It's not. It's not a trivial process. We'll get into that a little bit later. But that's interesting. Do you like the procedure part of it? Did you do you do you like doing Bronx? I love doing Bronx. You know, uh, when I was in fellowship, you know, it, it was funny. Most of us uh, in fellowship, when a patient walks in the door, we always uh, joke and say, "All right, you know, bronchoscopy." Bronchoscopy was always part of the plan. Now, as uh, attending, you know, I drag my feet and say, "Look." If this was my child, would I want to do a bronch? I think I can get away with observing first and always doing a bronch later. So, but we can always talk about what my day is like uh, later on in the interview. Yeah, well, we're getting like that. Why don't we start with how the residency was? What was involved? What was involved in the residency of becoming a pulmonologist? Tell me the timeline of that again. Sure. So, pediatric residency was uh, four years. And the reason why it was four years, I actually did a traditional DO internship. Did that help so, you, by the way? Because I did a traditional DO internship, and I'm forever grateful for it. And I wonder what your thoughts are of it. Because so many young people today, especially osteopaths, certainly the MDs, don't do internships anymore. What, what did you think about that internship, and how did it affect you as a physician? I think uh, because they kind of geared it us towards uh, our what what we wanted to do like residency wise. So I did majority of it in pediatrics, but I enjoyed it. It just gave me another year to study another year to learn. I know much, I know a lot of my colleagues are frustrated because they're saying, well, it's a year less from my career from making the so-called big bucks. But to me, I just enjoyed it. It was another year of learning. Um, Another year of learning, another year of training. So it was three years pediatric residency, and we came from a small program. So we did 24-hour calls still. So we did seven to eight calls per month. You know, we did about Q3 to Q4 calls per month. And pediatric residency filled with RSV, Rhoda, ICU, NICU, dealing with parents, dealing with teenagers. So, you know, most medical students that come onto pediatric rotation, they get sick. So it's always uh, funny 
when uh, you introduce <laughs> third and fourth years to pediatrics and you tell, tell them, look, be sure to wash your hands, good hand hygiene, but they don't really listen. So when they get sick, they're like, well, you didn't practice proper hand hygiene or really wearing a mask properly. So. I think that's really funny because I, I, I knew the same thing when I was younger and I had about 50% of my practice with pediatrics as a family doctor, I knew how that worked. Like <laughs> you have a lot of illness, even with the best of hygiene. Um, but, exactly. but then over time, I think your immune system is so, is so terrifically challenged by just about everything that after about 10 years, you're like immune to and bomb proof to almost anything that comes in the office. So that's pretty, Absolutely. I think that's, that's pretty it's funny. So patient sneeze on you and you're like, all right, whatever. Just out <laughs> with hand, uh, with hand sanitizer, take a nice shower and you're like, all right, back to the office the next day or the hospital. So, so John, a, a rotating internship, then a three years of pediatric internal medicine, was it? Or was it, yeah, it was, or, or just pediatrics, right? What's pediatrics. It, say again? Pediat just a general pediatrics. Interesting. And then did a pediatric pulmonology fellowship, uh, which was three years. And uh, the pediat most of the pediatric fellowships are three years because the American Academy of Pediatrics and the American Board of Pediatrics want you to do research. They really um, want you to focus on scholarly activity. So John, so you did, so you did a three-year pediatric residency, a year of internship, three-year pediatric, and then three years of a pediatric pulmonology fellowship? Mm-hmm. Wow. And on top of that, a year of sleep medicine fellowship, which I saw both pediatrics and adults. Well, this is not for the faint of heart, is it? No. You gotta, you gotta love, you gotta love the lungs for that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So, and the reason why I also did sleep medicine is a lot of issues come up while sleeping. It's almost like exercise, you know, and a lot of uh, issues can come up. And some of my colleagues who just did general pediatric pulmonology, they may miss it. So, I'm happy that I did medicine. Uh, it's probably also a good preparation for your future career as, as things change in your practice. I know a lot of folks that that focus more on sleep medicine because the physical demands of doing sleep medicine on, on just the physical demands on the physician are less. And as you get older, it seems to be that they find it easier to keep up with doing sleep medicine as opposed to a full spectrum of internal medicine, pulmonology, that sort of thing. Correct. Like my mentor in sleep, he was actually a military doctor. He did his uh, internal medicine in uh, Hawaii. He did, uh, he actually practiced for a year before going back to uh, pulmonary critical care. And he was practicing pulmonary crit in Hawaii and then got burned out and did went back and did sleep medicine. And he practiced uh, in the army for many years until he uh, retired and decided to go and do private practice sleep medicine. Was your residency rough, John? Was it was it was it horrible, or was it a pretty good pace for you? Did you have enough of time to get things done and feel like you could learn as well as see the patients you required to see? They provided us with autonomy. It was pretty well paced, you know. 
I probably could have done more, but that's always hindsight. You know, I could have said, oh, I probably could have done more, but with the time restriction going between several hospitals, I'm happy on how it was. That's nice. Well, now that you're a pulmonologist, what's a typical day in the life of a pulmonologist like? What, I mean, what does a pulmonologist do every day? Or is it just varied? Or what, what is that like? What's, what's your typical it day is, like? It is variable. Typically, I arrive early in the morning if I have a procedure. I do most of my procedures uh, with my fellow uh, ENT colleague, uh, Marcus Schaefer, who is a pediatric ENT. And the reason why is I try to limit as much anesthesia to our patients. So we prefer to, if we can do two or three procedures at once, and save OR time, save anesthesia, then we typically do that. So I combine and I consolidate uh, my procedures that way. So I do procedures with him. Afterwards, I usually takes me to the wards where I get consulted on children with asthma, children or adults with CF, exacerbations, cystic fibrosis, other children with chronic health conditions. And sometimes I do get consulted on my children with comorbid OSA, sleep apnea. I may stop by in the pediatric ICU to see my other children who have chronic medical conditions. Uh, because most of the time, uh, for these chronic complex children, they get admitted to the pediatric ICU. And then I go straight to my office where I see a majority of my patients as an outpatient basis. And at the same time, I try to also read sleep studies. Man. So how long is a typical day for a pulmonologist? Or does it just vary? It is variable. Typically, so, you know, uh, I finish my office hours around 3.30. Uh, so I typically get from 8.30 to 3.30. I may finish my notes at the same time in the office or later on in the night, you know. Uh, I may catch up on another day where I don't have uh, office in the morning, but usually I try to finish all my notes prior to the end of the week. And and so, do you, so are there are there pulmonary pulmonology emergencies? So like like the, like call at night. How does that work? So typically the emergencies is if there's a foreign body uh, that gets aspirated. Most of the time, the pediatric pulmonologist has our fellow ENT colleagues go and do a rigid bronchoscopy. But sometimes if they have difficulty, we may also do a uh, co-bronchoscopy. I do a flexible, they do a rigid, and we try to help each other out. Uh, patients with uh, pulmonary hemorrhage, uh, they are usually... Uh, if the patients are crashing. We usually come in. Um, I think one emergency that I had recently was a young child who was uh, tracheostomy dependent, and he came in with increased work of breathing. He came in with respiratory failure, pretty much, and they didn't really know if it was the issue with a trach or there was uh, some sort of other. Uh, respiratory illness or infection that was going on. 
and uh, I actually came in and had to do a bronchoscopy in the operating room for that child. Thank God it was in the, during the day, so services were there. Yeah, it makes a huge difference. No one, no one likes having something really critical to do in the middle of the night. It's always you're always shorthanded and you don't have the people you need and it takes longer to get things done. And I, I appreciate that completely. I I'd much rather deal with an emergency in the daytime. Absolutely. So what's the worst day in a pulmonology, pulmonologist life? What's the thing you just dread about pulmonology? I dread those patients that are crashing in the ICU. Those are probably the day that, you know, you try to, finish as quickly as possible in the outpatient, but the hospital is calling you. It's usually patients in the ICU who are very sick. You go to the, talk to the intensivist who's on service and they uh, need you to uh, help them out because sometimes they don't know what's going on or the patient may need a procedure and you're like, the patient just ate. You want to try to get them in to the operating room, but you have to delay it to the next day because they have to be NPO. It's just trying to figure out anesthesia is probably the biggest thing, as you uh, know from your uh, early career. Yeah, it's, uh, now, John, I'm, I'm old, and so I did my anesthesia time in the early 90s, and although, strangely enough, drug, some drugs have improved, but most of them have stayed relatively the same. In fact, if I probably spent an hour or two on a routine, on a routine case, I could probably deliver a pretty clean anesthetic. Uh, but yes, I mean, you, the ones that used to get me, again, are the ones you're talking about. The, the uh, cardiovascularly a compromised a patient coming out of an ICU going in for an emergency surgical procedure was always the one that really tightened you up. And you were just thinking, what are we going to miss here? How are we going to manage blood pressure? Especially if there was, you know, any kind of um, you know, coagulopathy or hematological problem. You're really thinking about that a lot because of the implications of anesthetics. I, I totally appreciate that. Sure. Yeah. What about the best day of a pulmonologist's day? The thing that just drives you to say, I love what I do and I'm so glad I decided to do it. So probably one of the best days is when you uh, parents thank you because you've taken uh, taking their children off of these asthma medications or you followed these children up for several years and you're saying, look, you know, your child has grown out of asthma, one. Or two, uh, I see a lot of children with chronic lung disease or prematurity and you've taken children off of oxygen. To parents, it's just like, they're not on oxygen anymore. You're telling me I don't have to bring a whole tank of equipment with me on when the child goes to the grocery store or to a doctor's visit. So it's always gracious and grateful that parents tell you thank you. It's just like when you reduce their burden. John, we're coming to the end of the first segment, but... You obviously practice in West Virginia, uh, and the thing that I think a lot of people may associate with, say, Eastern Kentucky and West Virginia are coal miners. Are you still yeah. seeing a lot of black lung disease, or has that pretty much been resolved with advances with, with NIOSH and the, and, and the mine safety folks and that kind of thing? Actually, no, because pe people, you know, you know, God bless them, but you also get frustrated because 
they're young, they think that they will live forever, so they're not wearing some of their equipment. So you kind of stress to the point, be like, look, I know you're a teenager, I know you're a young adult, but you have to wear this personal protective equipment. It's like what we're seeing right now, and you stress the fact, no, you gotta protect yourself. You have to protect yourself, especially if you're going and mining. Why would you hurt yourself and long-term cause you get caused with bodily harm, you know? Yeah, and John, I think that's a good place to end the first segment because we're going to talk uh, in the next segments about COVID-19 and the implications for pulmonologists and, of course, uh, other intensivists. But I also, in the midst of this week, are nationwide gatherings of people demonstrating for um, Mr. Floyd, who was um, unfortunately killed in Minnesota last uh, week. Um, and all of them are they're basically, in many cases, ignoring guidance for COVID-19 as far as droplet control and masks. Uh, and so maybe we'll talk about that a little bit and the implications of youth and thinking you're invincible and invulnerable and how that can not play out so good when you get older. But uh, any other thoughts as we end the first segment, John, about pulmonology, the practice of pulmonology, what you like about it, don't like about it, that you think all people thinking about it should know? I'll tell you this, for uh, those uh, medical students or those residents interested in pulmonology, you have to be okay with phlegm and secretions. If you don't like phlegm and you don't like secretions or mucus, don't go to pulmonology. That is a fact. That is the one, we've talked about this before, John, that's the one thing that really turns me is I I can't look at respiratory secretions. I'd be intubating people and pulling stuff out of their lungs and I'd really have to force myself not to, not to go, not to go down the vomit highway when I was doing that stuff. But for you, you're just indifferent to it or you just doesn't even affect you? Is it the same way as I am with vomit or with uh, feces or stool or any of that kind of stuff? Or are you just like, man, whatever, it's just, how does that work for you? I am like, I'm indifferent with that. Be like, yes, you know, I have mucus, I have secretions. They're the same as yours. I'm used to it. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I admire you because I'd see these big, thick mucus plugs come out of people and I'd just be, oh dear, I don't know if I can look at that. This <laughs> is very strange. People, I think a lot of people, uh, one of my favorite, just so you know, one of my favorite residents right now, um, she, basically threw up in her first surgery. She was determined to be an emergency room doctor. Um, she had a background in EMS services. And by the end of it, she's now a surgery resident. And I think it's important for young people to understand that are thinking about this stuff. Doctors aren't invincible. We are, we are all vulnerable to our own weaknesses as well. But what Dr. Bashar is telling you is very true. If you just can't possibly think about, if you get through your pulmonology rotation and after two weeks, you're just in the same place you were before when it comes to that stuff, you maybe not want to be a pulmonologist. If you get through it after the first couple of days, then maybe, maybe you got a new field you can consider, but it is true. All of us have our breaking point. I think, what do you think, John? Absolutely. What's you yours? Know, uh, I think when I was, um, it was probably OBGYN, and I just, the smell. I was like, all right, I just have to get used to the smell. Now, you know, the smell doesn't bother me, but it took me a while. Like amniotic fluid, that sort of thing? Correct. Uh, amniotic fluid, uh, just with the whole 
labor and everything because of all the blood, the feces that were mixed in. And you're like, all right, let me just get through it. Uh, <laughs> I know. For people who are listening to this that are not involved in medicine or interested in it, and we do have people who listen to rotations because they're just curious, medicine is not, I've told people forever, medicine is not a profession as much as it is a trade. Um, we're plumbers, we're electricians, we're carpenters, we're, we're, we're people that get dirty in a lot of ways, uh, sometimes with things that are not real pleasant. And so among doctors talking about this stuff, I hope it illustrates for listeners that, again, um, we practice this profession. That's why I think of I think of myself as a tradesman. I, I'm never perfect at it. I'm always working towards being better at it. And good tradespeople do that. But part of the job is like your plumber. The reason why you pay him so much is because he's going to crawl over under your house in the middle of winter to make your toilet work. And <laughs> that's a lot of medicine, actually, metaphorically, crawling under the house in the middle of winter to make the toilet work. Um, so if you're thinking about a career in medicine, you, you got to be willing to get dirty because <laughs> you're going to get dirty in this job if you're doing it right, I think. Make sense? It's like Joe, right? Mike Rowe, uh, dirty, uh, dirty job. It totally is. Has he, he, should, he should rotate with the pulmonologist in the, in the bronchoscopy suite. Uh, you know, we, we, was a we should call him up, say, hey, micro, we got a dirty job for you. Yeah. <laughs> well, OK, John, I'll tell you what, let's end the first segment. And are you willing to stick with me for a little while? Sure. Oh, that's great. OK, so with that, uh, I'm going to thank uh, Dr. John Bichardio uh, of uh, Charleston Area Medical Center, pulmonologist extraordinaire, friend of mine. And um, we're going to carry this on on the next episode about some of the implications of uh, our current state of affairs in the United States and the world for pulmonologists. And with that, I thank you and I, I just wish you the best of weeks. Take care. Take me to the streets so I can celebrate. Never knew a feeling better than today Meets to a beginning of a brighter day Letting in a feeling, mending what we break Find the solace in the dismay Rotations is the weekly podcast of all things medicine and science as part of the media and medicine family of medical storytelling. The opinions and comments expressed on rotations do not reflect the official or unofficial positions of the Ohio University, the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, or the Scripps College of Communications. Guests on rotations are interviewed in an unopposed fashion so their ideas and opinions can be freely expressed. This episode of Rotations was produced by Todd Fredericks, hosted by Todd Fredericks, and edited by Todd Fredericks. Rotations is co-hosted by a league of champions of all things medical and a few people we sometimes pull off the street. Rotations is copyrighted, and while we welcome citations, tweets, Facebook likes, and other endorsements via word of mouth and social media, we reserve the right to all content. You may use Rotations content under the provisions of Creative Commons, but you cannot alter or edit the content in any manner without express permission of the content creators. You must cite Rotations as the source of any content derived from the podcast. We welcome any comments, and you can contact us by tweeting us at Medical Cinema for Todd, at Prof Plow for Brian, Nisar Bakshi for Nisar Bakshi and at Rotations PCAST or by visiting mediaandmedicine.com slash rotations. Check us out on Facebook at Media and Medicine. And finally, from me, Todd Fredericks, you can also send me a message through my Facebook page at TR Fredericks. But please, I have a sensitive feelings, so embrace your inner non-hater. Show the way you see the world.